Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Welcome to our September 2019 livestream. We'll be getting started in just a moment so go ahead and get your questions in the chat window, and we'll get to as many as we can today in the next hour or so. In deference to our moderators trying to pick out questions to relay to me, do try to keep them fairly straightforward, brief, and legible. With that said, hopefully you've got a drink and a snack, and let's get started. Good afternoon everyone, we'll get started with our questions as soon as we got some of them in, and just remember, when we're doing the uh, questions please keep them concise for everybody who's trying to do the moderation on those so they are coming through kind of clear, we often get questions that are a little bit illegible. Uh, just some quick announcements while those get in there, um, we do have, uh, well we'll save talking about Nebula for when we get to the mid-session break, but uh, we'll go for about an hour and we'll pause for about 3-4 minutes right about in the middle of things. So you can grab a drink and a snack, and I can grab a drink and a snack. Alright, so starting off with questions here, um, are you worried that quantum computers will give historical precedent to developing military applications of technology as a global priority? Um, You know, it's really hard to say with things like quantum computers what the actual effect is going to be. Obviously the military is pretty interested in its applications, so is everybody else. It's obviously a very big deal for cryptography, but not so much for breaking cryptography. Um, There's always that kind of that, uh, these are going to let us crack everybody's email, but it's actually not that hard if you have the same technology to make pretty much unbreakable ciphers that way. I mean, it was the one-time pad option. Uh, I think we'll actually be talking about that now I think about it. We did have an episode on quantum computing some years back. You can kind of brush up the way people are getting excessive about the technology in terms of what it can do. It's not a magic wand, but... uh, we have a cybersecurity episode coming up. Uh, it's an election week. Um, so interesting side note is we had to do a lot of uh, retooling of our systems with the uh, Board of Elections to get ready for the uh, upcoming election in terms of things like cybersecurity. So I had to go to a conference, a couple of conferences actually for that uh, over the course of last year and uh, learned a lot more than I ever wanted to about cybersecurity to be honest. But uh, we do have an episode coming up on cybersecurity in November where we'll talk about quantum computing a bit day or two. I can't really think of any other major military applications that would have off the top of my head, but you know, you you never really know what folks are going to come up with in terms of applying it. Like lasers, we always thought from lasers and sci-fi, you use them to shoot people. We use them in the military all the time, but not for shooting people, at least not to hurt them. We, we use it sometimes to blind folks, of course, but it's principal uses, things like range finding, range finding and uh, targeting. So. Uh, Tylo F asks, <clears throat> have you heard any update on the Gateway Foundation? When do you think we will build our next space station? Um, you know, I don't think anyone's really got enough set plan for replacing the ISS right now. And I'd really hope whatever the next one's going to be on that would be something that kind of incorporates the idea of being used as a launch pad to, uh, either get to, um, the moon in a slightly more permanent way, uh, or to get to Mars for a quick trip. Um, as for Gateway Foundation, yeah, I hear from them pretty often. Um, there was, they, they recently uncut, there actually pretty news about that, I can't remember the exact details for. If you go check out Gateway Foundation though, you'll see a, a revised version of a, a, a space station they got planned that, uh, is, uh, maybe a little bit more modest, maybe a little bit more what you could do in the near future, and, uh, I think it's a pretty good design, but, uh, go, go check that out, because I don't really remember off the top of my head, nor can I describe it too well. Um, <clears throat> Albert Jackson asks, what's one thing you did in the past that when you look back on it, that you think what you would do in that instance was either really dumb or the smallest thing you ever did? Um, I think the smallest thing I ever did was decide to put together an episode on mega structures uh, about five years back. Um, dumbest thing I ever did. Oh wow, that would be quite the laundry list. Um, most of it embarrassing, so I will bypass that and merely say that I have made any number of stupid mistakes in my lifetime like most folks. Thankfully, most of them when I was younger. Ed uh, Vickery asks, what are your thoughts on SpaceX's Starship Hopper unveiled last night? You know, I actually did not know they unveiled a spaceship last night, so I'm going to have to pass on that one for the moment. Uh, <laughs> been a bit of a busy last couple of days. Uh, where did I get that cool bolo tie? <laughs> 
Um, you know, I actually, I do, I, I think I got off Amazon, but uh, I always feel like if you're wearing a button up short, you should probably wear a tie if you're not going to do the top button undone. And I don't really have to do that. So, but I don't like wearing normal ties and I, I don't want to wear a, um, a uh, bow tie. So uh, I guess I uh, could argue that I live in a rural area and therefore uh, can wear a rancher tie like the bolo, but uh, it's really more of a Southwestern thing. Either way, I like it. So <laughs> uh, thank you, cool ass cats. Um, Chris Oberg asked, do you think Melee could make a return in sci-fi, especially in combination with power suits and tight quarters? How do you think they would walk? It's actually a good question. Um, you know, one of the, f well, there's two settings I know of that use a lot of uh, melee combat in the distant future. Uh, one of those is Frank Hobart's Dune series, where they had the personal shields, and so they, they fight with those. Um, and uh, critically, they don't have any sort of artificial intelligence or computers in mind, so they can't just like, there's a speed that you can get through the shield in Dune. They have to have it set that way so that AO can get through, so it has to be slower than bullets would go, right? Um, so you can get through with a, a slow knife. They keep it very slow so you can still get some AO in. Uh, but obviously if you had computerized weaponry, you could fire something that would slow down just enough to get through that shield. Um, the other one, of course, is 40k, where they, they do actually have personal shields too, but mostly they just like to stab people with knives and swords a lot for some reason. Uh, I think it looks cooler on the models. Um, but, uh, the usual way that could happen, obviously, if you had something like a force field, of course, or really good point defense systems... Um, because with those, the more time you had to see a thing going, the more time you had to react to it to shoot it down. But, um, if you had any kind of armor that was just really, really strong, uh, you know, much stronger than what a chemical fired, you know, bullet could get through, and you had some kind of point defense system like mounted on your shoulder that could shoot down bullets anyway, then you might actually have to have people springing, you know, power armor with swords at each other, I suppose, but... Realistically, there's a reason why we always like to have ranged weapons, um, and, uh, you know, why archers were so, uh, deadly on the battlefield, even before we had guns, um, <clears throat> but I don't see, I don't really see a return of that being too likely, but it's hard to say. Um, Mr. Gonzanato asks, if you had Elon Musk ear, what would be the first thing you would ask him to do? Uh, you know, it's funny, I, I didn't see the SpaceX Starship thing today, but I did see a thing from Tesla about new uh, magnetic wiper blades they had. It was an uh, interesting concept, but I, hmm, I don't know what I would, uh, I mean, I, I like his focus on trying to get to Mars and doing it more in a big way. I suppose I'd probably be kind of pushing him to more of a commercial space station and moon base or moon labs thing. And uh, we might actually do an episode on moon labs at some point in time and kind of see, because we've done a moon episode in a bit what kind of, uh, you know, scientific endeavors might be very well suited to the moon. Um, what do you think would be the first industries viable in orbit? In terms of industries, you've got kind of two of those you'd have going on. Well, three. First, of course, is your satellite industry, which is already present. The things that allow you to take advantage of, you know, orbital space to broadcast. And I could easily see, uh, you know, planetary Wi-Fi, for instance, uh, a decent bandwidth so that you could still be getting stuff on, you know, while you're on the North Pole, for instance. And that could be a very powerful industry. The other one, of course, is those industries that have to do with continuing to expand in space. And they've always got that catch-22 involved with them um, that uh, you don't really need those industries until you have some industries up in space to support them. But uh, something like asteroid mining of gold would be a good one that would get you started. That's not really an orbit of Earth. There's no reason to tow an asteroid home to uh, to mine it unless you specifically want to be using all the material that's in there and you're bringing it back so that you can, you know, slowly turn into any number of things like dirt for inside of a space habitat, for instance, too. Um, <clears throat> and I would say then your other big one, of course, would be something like chemical engineering and materials that can only be done in, in microgravity or zero gravity. And uh, that strikes me as probably the first big one that you'd be using to take stuff back down to the Earth. And uh, I see the kickstarting space industry episode for more discussion on that. But there's a lot of materials that we're only just now really finding out about that could be done in space. And I think your big industry initially is, is scientific experiments. And I think chemistry would be a big one. But you're also the option that big industry might be, you know, beaming power satellites and uh, as an alternative to uh, nuclear power, which is never terribly popular. But, uh, you know, Boeing getting fusion, uh, power satellites or nuclear are usually your best options for high density power generation. And um, power satellites seems like they might have a bit of an edge in some respects, but we'll have to see how that technology develops in terms of launch costs. Um, 
Stello Mimo asks, uh, do you think people in the future will be more collectivist or individual on average than right now? You know, this is the interesting thing that always comes up when we start talking about uh, what people be like in the future. Um, I would generally tend to guess that you would have not like a convergence towards one thing, but a, a massive divergence in terms of what people do in terms of their governmental systems, their economies, their general daily lives and cultures. And, uh, you know, they say with more communication that we're much more unified as a, you know, a meta civilization, if you would, than we used to be. You know, you can get cornflakes anywhere on this planet, for instance. Uh, you can check your email anywhere on this planet, for instance. But at the same time, we also have a lot more diversity in, in many, you know, of our cultures and subcultures than we probably ever had before. You start getting much bigger populations, you're going to have a big diversity towards that. So I think you would have some groups that were much more collectivist and some that were diehard individualistic and, uh, you could have you know, like Marksville and Galt's Gorge right next to each other in space. Um, and uh, in terms of like more of the hive mind type of collectivism, I don't actually think you'd ever really have hive minds a really big deal. You might get a lot more networking in the sense of this is much faster than normal speech. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not really sure that you'd end up using that because our brains are already wired for the current type of communication we have. And uh, that's, you know, how we do it and you try to build around that system you're probably talking about some pretty massive uh re-engineering of the brain in order to actually make that effective um <clears throat> thank you alkegor could you expand on the ethics of creating a life form robot that enjoys the task it was made for e.g trash collecting robots silver androids etc uh you know there's always that rick and morty episode where uh it's uh, you know you get this robot it's it gets turned on by uh by rick and it says what is my purpose and it says you you pass buttle and it asks him over again later, oh, what is my purpose? And to pass Buttle, it says, oh my god. <laughs> you know, I don't think you would ever give anything one drop more brain power than it needs to perform its task. Uh, both because that's uh, economically inefficient, uh, why give it more brains than it needs. Second, because it's arguably kind of cruel. And I guess we'll throw a third one in there, that's potentially quite dangerous. You really don't want to have smart things wandering around with tasks they might not like or might be smart enough to figure out why they shouldn't like. Um, but, uh, I mean, if you got a trash collecting robot that you've given human intelligence to, uh, that almost sounds a little bit sadistic. Uh, in fact, we make a joke about that in the spacesuits episode on Thursday. Um, but I mean, you can always build something that would enjoy its job. I mean, uh, we have a lot of detrivores, uh, is it detritivores, uh, things that, which eat the waste of other creatures in nature um bottom feeders in the oceans and uh i don't know if they're actually happy with their life or not most of them are not terribly intelligent but um you know they don't seem like they are discontent either so i suppose if you're using like copies of a catfish or lobster brain or uh other detrivores that might be quite happy with their life but the more complex you want to make it i, I really wouldn't ever try to make something like an asmovian robot something that could kind of pass for human that was doing what i would think of as a task that a human really would want to do you, there really should be very few of those where that's the case anyway. Uh, <clears throat> Jono asks, Have you ever thought of doing a video on the Silurian hypothesis or the idea that we may not be the first civilization or solar system? I mean, I guess we kind of did that with ancient aliens, but we could look at something like, you know, what if life had started up on Mars first or if there were civilizations like that. But I mean, you can kind of guess what my thought on that is that it's, it's terribly unlikely. Um... But I mean, you couldn't rule it out. It might be an interesting one to do at some point in time for like the Alien Civilization series. But um, I do not, I mean, I would not be surprised if we found ruins of a relatively advanced, i.e. Uh, Neolithic or even maybe maybe even Copper Age um, civilization that was a lot older than we thought. When I say a lot older than we thought, I mean, you know, 20,000 years or something like that, 30,000 years. You know, we find some very uh, impressive civilizations a lot older than we thought lying around there or in places we wouldn't have expected them to. But they're all still kind of inside the zone of what is viable in the in the fossil record. So I don't expect to ever find like leftovers of a uh, dinosaur civilization. Um, I have not seen the movie Ad Astra yet, Brian. Um, Albert asks, what do you think of connecting skyscrapers with skyways and higher street levels instead of span expanding our cities outwards? And what could we do with suburbs that we already have? Um, if you start building things like arcologies, you know, very, well, arcologies in the sense of very large structures that are like enclosed cities as opposed to just self-sufficient habitats, um, then I think you'd, you'd see a lot more skyways. And I do think we'll see a lot more skyways in, in cities that are going more vertical with time. But um, 
you know, there's always that question of why you're building up when you can build outward. Uh, and we use almost none of the land space on this planet for actual habitation. Um, you know, you get the impression if you're living like a suburb, for instance, that these are huge sprawling things that go on for miles and miles and people tend to forget that it's just along the freeways. <laughs> um, in the United States, at least, uh, most, most habitation is along the roads uh, because we, you know, we grew up during time of cars. That's when all the uh, cities and, and towns are being built. And typically you get like 100 feet behind the road, it's forced. Um, but it goes on like that for miles. So you, you can get the impression that we're all sprawled all over the place with tons of houses. Even in New York City uh, or, you know, Tokyo, right? Uh, in New York City, most buildings are four stories or less. Um, there are not that many skyscrapers. I think it's like 300 in uh, like Tokyo, uh, Manila, and, and, and New York each, something along those lines. <clears throat> and those are huge buildings, but they're not that not that huge. Um, but I mean, we could see an increase towards that. It's just you're only going to really see that kind of massive increase in skyscrapers. I mean, talking orders of magnitudes more of them uh, if you really have the population going up orders of magnitude too. I think. All right. Um, my zombie asks if you had access to a fully sentient, super intelligent AI, but could only ask it one question, what would your question be? Uh, see who catches the reference here. I would ask you if there was any way to reverse entropy. <laughs> so, if you remember our first book of the month, which is actually a short story, it's the last question by Isaac Asimov, and it uh, it's it's various uh, I guess you say vignettes of uh, civilizations in the short story. We are uh, advancing towards the future, and uh, every so often they have an engineer who asks their big supercomputer, Multivac, is there any way to reverse entropy? And uh, it, it always says that it's, it's still thinking on it as a war. Uh, it's a very great story, and I would say probably one of the best sci-fi short stories uh, ever written by Asimov or anybody else for that matter. So I would definitely check that out if you have not. Last question uh, from Asimov. Um, Joe Suvachi asks, what do you think the best hard sci-fi book is? Almost, well, that I personally enjoy, Alastair Reynolds. Uh, if you're reading something like Stephen Baxter, for instance, he's quite hard science fiction too, uh, Greg Egan, but... Um, Alistair Reynolds remains my personal favorite. Um, and in fact, he's my favorite author other than Brandon Sanderson, who mostly writes fantasy. Um, but uh, <clears throat> if you've never read the Revelation Space trilogy, it's, it's not a trilogy, actually, it's quite a few more books than that these days, but that is a really good series. Um, and uh, House of Sons by him is another one. It's a little bit less hard sci-fi, but uh, really good approach. I think that was a book of the month. I think actually both of those were books of the month. But uh, Alistair Reynolds, definitely my favorite Hollywood sci-fi vital. Um, how rich TV? If NASA had a $1 trillion budget, uh, what would you presume they would be able to achieve? <sighs> you know, if they had a $1 trillion budget, I'd probably be asking to cut their budget. Uh, throwing money at problems is not really the best way to solve them. <laughs> uh, if I had a trillion bucks to spend on something right now, I mean, I wouldn't go out and do it then. I do a lot of prototyping and researching because you don't just waste money or, or recklessly push forward if you don't have to. But if I had a budget in that kind of zone for space exploration, I'd be looking to build an orbital ring almost right away and a pretty serious space station, uh, you know, at least in the Gateway Foundation or Kaplan of One's uh, level and uh, looking towards trying to get moon base set up and uh, some asteroid mining going on. A trillion budget, uh, which absolutely per annum is, is a lot of money to do that with. Um, <clears throat> Victor Runyon asked, did you ever find working on SFIA creating a conflict with your day job? No. Uh, in point of fact, the last time it came up was that cybersecurity episode I was mentioning and the fact that uh, I spent so much time on that uh, that I decided I might as well go ahead and do an episode on cybersecurity. Um, but uh, no, I've never found it in conflict in the least bit. I'd also say, I mean, especially if you're working on something that's a little bit outside of the human normal, you know, like uh, if if you've got a job or jobs that uh, kind of just, if you, especially if you're a workaholic, which I guess I am, um, it's good to have another major interest, at least one other major interest uh, professionally and hobby-wise too, just to kind of avoid that, that kind of tunnel vision you can often get when you're only focused on one thing. Um and uh but no i've never found the least bit of a conflict between the two of them um but of course that is also part of the reason why we never talk politics on the show besides the fact that i think it's rude I, I have to deal with enough politics and election and government stuff in the day job um <clears throat> joshua jenkins thank you very much 
Uh, also, thank you, Celeste Jones and Ramuel. Uh, by the way, if anyone was wondering, I'm thanking the folks who are doing the super chats. Um, Isaac, what do you think of SpaceX with regards to food? Can humans survive purely on plants? It seems vegetarianism is, is, is doable, but not veganism. Uh, I disagree, but I mean, I guess it depends on how, um, how, uh, high tech you're getting about it. I, I think that, uh, well, I mean, you know, I say usually whey proteins, the one I would use as supplement, but, uh, that is, that is ve uh, vegetarian rather than vegan. I'd have to check to make sure that they're currently producing stuff that actually has all the essential amino acids that you need in there, but I'm pretty sure you can do that on a strictly vegan one. After that, you know, it's the proteins are the critical thing, though, you know, you do need a certain amount of fats in your diet, though often the ones in the plants are uh, a little bit healthier, um, or the fish anyway. Um, let's see, what else would be in there? Enzymes. A lot of the enzymes that we need, um, you're not going to get them in plants so much, or, in, you know, we can grow them in yogurt, but they wouldn't be there. Um, you can put those into some kind of stew, though, that has nothing to do with an animal, and uh, those enzymes are arguably not animals uh, or animal derived once you start growing them in a tank but uh i mean i don't really see any reason why you would need to go vegetarian in space or vegan in space um <clears throat> if it's an ethical issue by all means uh and you certainly don't want to be trying to keep cows on board a spaceship but uh you know i don't think it's really all that hard to do chickens even but you wouldn't want to do them on a small spaceship but then you know on a normal ship here on earth or a plane we don't you know fly across the Atlantic or even on a big oil tanker that takes months to get between ports, you don't go around uh, keeping livestock on board. You keep, you know, canned foods on. And if that plant's growing there at all, it's just because you want something fresh. You know, like uh, keeping an orange tree on there to, uh, little dwarf orange tree on your ship to help avoid, um, I was about to say syphilis, not that. Scurvy. Scurvy was the disease that you needed vitamin C for. Um, but I mean, I think that you'd see a lot of plants being used on spaceships because it gives you, you know, an air recycling method, a water recycling method, and something green to look at. You know, at least when you're on the ocean, you got all the blue waves to look at, but in space, you got nothing but the empty void, which you usually won't have a lot of windows open to anyway, because there's no real reason to see into the empty void. So, um, I think you would almost always want to have some kind of garden on board one of those or something that could pass for a garden, depending on what your acceleration rate is. Um... But, I mean, I think, I don't see any reason why you couldn't do veganism. I'm just not sure why you would. Like, if you're doing aquaponics, that would be, you could do fish very easily with that. And in other cases, you just pack food. Whether you're doing it vegetarian or not, whether you're doing it vegan or not, whether you're trying to keep livestock on board there or not, if you're doing a long expedition, you, you take packed food along for it because it's almost always going to be more space than mass efficient. Um, and uh, only when we start getting into, like, interstellar distances do you really need to start making sure you have all your food production on board uh thank you cool ass cats uh pets in a mars habitat oh cool ass cats well, that's also a cool name pets in a mars habitat realistic good for morale but worth the resources i don't know if we had oh, did we already have the episode come out where i was talking about having pets on board spaceships because so i think I, I we did have that one coming up was that spaceship design i think that's out in late october early november um, yeah, I think you would have pets on board ships, um, and on a mouse habitat. Um, not the first ones, not your, you know, big pioneer ones, but we've always had cats on ships. Um, and we like to have our dogs with us too. Um, and, uh, you know, humans are social creatures. You, you, you can train people to do without, you can find people who are not suited for it. But whenever you got a deficiency, you know, something that's missing that you normally have on earth, that's important to people. If there's a way that you can simply provide that, as opposed to trying to go without or trying to make a duplicate, provide that. And there's no reason you couldn't have a cat on board a spaceship uh, if it's got some gravity. I wouldn't want to take pets on board anything that had no gravity, other than maybe fish, which I mean, I haven't really thought of fish as a pet. Um, but uh, I would say if you've got any sort of spin grav going on, which I think you probably will on, on most of these occasions or we got some kind of gravity that's okay for humans then it's probably okay for cats and dogs too so i think you would actually bring those along and i don't think you'd actually have to worry too much about rats on spaceships per se but which is the major reason why they had cats along but uh i, I just think we'd almost always have a pet on board or a pet at these locations i mean we have them at almost every human outpost we ever had um you know they got them down at mcmurdo in antarctica you know <laughs> you got those polar stations got the dogs and the cats Although dogs are often walking animals, carrying the sleds around. Um, and uh, so, no, I just can't really see, you know, us not having those pets along. And I would say, you know, 
uh, how much fuel is it worth to keep people in good morale? If I tell you that uh, good morale requires us to bring along uh, 100 kilograms of books, now we don't have to do books anymore, but that was always a consideration on all your spaceships is, you know, there's personal space allotments, something like books, you're having a library on board your spaceship back before we had really good digital stuff made perfect sense. There was that for mostly morale. Yeah, some would be tech manuals, but others would be keeping up the morale and spirit of the crew. That is every bit as important as uh, as um, you know food supplies or medical supplies. And uh, if you can bring along a cat or a dog, I think you would. Um, <clears throat> ZZ asks, "What is your opinion on Planet Nine being a black hole? Which one is currently Planet Nine? Um, I guess we count Ceres as four, so that make Neptune Nine and Pluto Ten. Uh, I don't think Neptune's a black hole, um, unless we're talking about like another mysterious planet nine that's like a full-sized rocky planet on a dwarf planet. I'm not sure if they're uh, have they found one. I don't think they'd found one. Um, but uh, there's no black holes, by the way, in our solar system, unless they are micro black holes, and uh, that'd be like a primordial black hole, I suppose. Uh, and that's always possible, but I think we'd be seeing some radiated evidence of that kind of thing if those were common at this stage. Uh, I mean, it is a popular dark matter um, alternative, but it's not really very, very solid evidence-wise or, or theory-wise for that. I don't think there's any black holes of stellar mass in our solar system. That would be really, really obvious. So the only type of black holes we know for sure can be made, uh, you know, a black hole is more massive than our sun is. And so if it's going in the solar system, uh, it wouldn't be orbiting around the sun, we'd be orbiting around it. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Krieg or Dog. Hello, Isaac. If you could sit down and influence real policy with NASA, what is the roadmap you'd want them to follow? What would realistically accelerate our industrialization of space? Um, hmm. Uh, it's because I actually do know a lot of folks at NASA these days. Um, uh... You know, I think they have a pretty good roadmap based on, I don't think you, unless somebody's really ready to commit to a big project, you know, like something like we are doing a moon base, then I don't think you really benefit much from doing a long-term planning for anything other than the actual space vessels you're using, you know, this next station. And there's really no reason to, to you know, lock in on those when technology improves constantly. Um, let's see. Um, hmm. And uh, let's... I'd really like to see progress. I know everybody wants to go to Mars, but I'd really like to see progress on, on designing a, a moon base, like a permanent base there. And they are, I think we probably won't up doing that Moon Labs episode because it's kind of catching my head at this point. Um, the moon to me is the one place to be wanting to go to set up our next big shop. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with going to Mars, but I don't think it should be our priority. And I think the asteroid mining is a great idea, but uh, I still feel like that moon base is still the most logical thing to do next. And um, <clears throat> I'd really like to see effort towards that. I'm not interested in sending people back to go collect more rocks or plant more flags. Uh, that that space race aspect of things does not interest me. We've done that. Um, but uh, a moon base does strike me as where I'd want the roadmap to be pointing towards more than anything else. All right. And we'll go to one more question before we actually head to break. Uh, Naked Monk asks, picked up the city and the stars. Thanks for the recommendation. Great read so far. Keep up the awesome walk. Thank you. Uh, what do you think... What you see being like, excuse me. What you see being a likely near-term tech that could be as disruptive as smartphones, the internet, etc. Hmm. Uh, well, self-driving cars, I think, is probably going to be the next big one. Um, because I mean, that's that's going to be incredibly disruptive. Disruptive usually means good in, in the net sense, but I would actually say self-driving self-driving freight vehicles would be. I, Self-driving delivery and self-driving freight. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to have the idea of a taxi cab and get people, and that will certainly have a big effect when you've, you even start having cars just going around picking people up like taxis as a kind of a ultra Uber effect there where people don't even need to own their own car anymore just because somebody's got so many of those smart ones driving around. Um, but uh, when you start having automated freight and automated delivery, that is hugely disruptive because I think driving is, if memory serves, the uh, the job description of driver is the largest job description, the, the most people employed with that specific job in the United States. So you think about the kind of impact that would have if that suddenly went away or got cut in half, and that would be huge. It might be very beneficial to the economy, but that would be very disruptive. So, all right. We're going to go ahead and go to break real quick, and we'll see you in a few minutes. So we'll be taking a quick break so I can grab some coffee. If you want to grab a drink and a snack too, we've got a few minutes. 
It's also a great chance to get some more questions in for our second half, and again, try to keep those fairly clear and concise. We also have some big news in regard to our streaming service, Nebula, including a new episode coming out this week, Me, Myself, and I, Cloning and Duplication. I'll talk about it more in Thursday's episode, but we joined up with a number of other education channels to create a subscription streaming service called Nebula to make it easier for us to put out our content that might otherwise not do so well on YouTube, whose algorithms for recommending content can be fairly rough on educational shows sometimes. Our initial launch for that was way more successful than our most optimistic expectations, and we also got contacted shortly after by CuriosityStream, one of this show's sponsors, who host a lot of great documentaries and educational material themselves and wanted to partner up to offer our Nebula content too. So now you can get access to their content and get our Nebula exclusive content in addition to that for no extra cost. I'll leave the link to join up with that in the video description and again we'll talk about it more Thursday and that extra episode on cloning will be out this week, though if you haven't already seen our last Nebula exclusive, The Butterfly Effect, you can sign up today too. We also recently did a poll here on YouTube to pick another episode and the winner was Gods and Monsters, Space as Lovecraft envisioned it, which beat out its four competitors, and thank you to the thousands of folks who voted in that poll. We'll do another of those in probably a few more weeks, though we also have another one running over on Patreon and if you want to vote in that, or suggest episode topics the next time we run one, you can become an SFIA Patron, and that's also linked in the video description. We also drive a lot of YouTube polls over on our Facebook page, also linked in the video description, and take the top 5 suggestions and put them on the YouTube polls, which is where we got the last 5 that Gods and Monsters won. We're not doing a Discord after hours show today, but if you'd like to continue the conversation or discuss the kind of topics we cover with like-minded individuals, our Facebook page, along with our Reddit, website forums, and Discord server are all great places to do that. Lastly, if you didn't already know, YouTube isn't the only place to catch SFIA episodes, as we also offer two audio-only versions of each episode, one with music in the background and one without on both iTunes and SoundCloud. I recently got asked if I could start including our live streams there too, and those are now up, though they're not live and usually won't be up until later in the evening of a live stream or the next morning. For now, anyway. I'll look into ways we might better incorporate that, and ideally even get it set up to run live and be set up to take questions too. So now everything we do on YouTube is also available on SoundCloud and iTunes, but not everything there is on YouTube. There is some exclusive content for audio only, and I plan to add some more along with getting those playlists over there organized. I hate to admit it, but I'd half forgotten that part of our platform this last year and didn't really notice I had until I was uploading those live streams, so hopefully more to come there soon too. And now, back to our show. Okay, and we're back, and also real quick, thank you Coolest Cats, that's actually very generous of you and appreciate it. Tudosarpe asks, Isaac, what would be some sci-fi topic you wouldn't be able to make a video about because it would simply be just too hard to speculate? We get a lot of those and they go on the back burner and some of them end up actually turning into uh, episodes in the future like we did with the Jobs of Future for the longest time, I just didn't want to touch that one. Uh, one that's on the hopper right now is Education of Future, um, just because I'm not really sure where to focus in on that one if we do short term or long term. Um but uh hmm. I think there's a lot that I didn't think we were going to touch, but we ended up like doing clock tech episodes or things like that. But uh to some degree it's one of the reasons why we don't tend to do a lot of the stuff that's too much about specific cultures either, besides the fact that it can be kind of a touchy topic and uh I try to avoid anything that's gonna cause flame wars on the channel. Um there's also the big thing is I have no idea. Uh, usually it's, it's like, which of these systems do you think will be more in use in the future as a cultural or, you know, economy or government? I say, uh, probably none of the above because things have a way of changing. I mean, I think you actually would still have things like kingdoms kicking around even 10,000 years from now, but, uh, I would tend to bet that whatever the major systems we use now are, we'd have something different going on, you know, a few centuries down the road even, and it would probably come out of left field where you just weren't expecting it. Let's see. Uh, thank you, Martin, uh, Van, I'm gonna mess up your name, Oosterhout, 
Osterhout, thank you for all your hard work. It's appreciated. The Dying Light asks, what is your opinion about the idea of super habitable planets, worlds better fit for development of divorced life? Paradise planets, those sometimes get called. Um, the idea that you'd find, and I think they used to have these in Master Ryan, you know, plants that are way better than your home world. Um, and uh, I don't think you'd ever find a place that was better suited for you than your home world. You could probably terraform ones that would be much better for certain types of life. You can certainly create some that are probably better for, for individual types of life. But um, pretty much by its very nature, 4 billion years of evolution means that whatever you know, life we have right now is pretty much best suited for this planet. Um, within reason, obviously. But uh, I don't know. You could... Uh, I get really suspicious if we ever found a planet that actually had life on it that was very basic uh, and seemed like it was better for Earth life or anything that just looked like it was a super easy terraforming target. I'd start wondering if we were in a simulation or if somebody was leaving us gifts. Um, and, uh, that, that would be kind of neat. I could see us doing that actually, uh, far down the road, doing a little bit of light up with, you know, or, you know, if we detect a planet where folks were getting pretty good at it, so literally in their immediate interstellar neighborhood with easy to colonize planets. <laughs> um, although I don't know, we'd necessarily be all that secret about that, you know, say, these are gifts for you. This is your space. We've already done the hard heavy lifting for you. Um, Azor the Great Ass, sorry, Azor the Great Ass. Do you think every problem will be solved given an amount of time and resources? Um, no. Uh, I mean, it would be cool if that was the case. I know we always like to say anything that's, uh, you know, there's no such thing as impossible, but, uh, I mean, see the things which never exist episode, which will never exist episode. Um, you know, I don't think we're ever going to break thermodynamics. Uh, it would be cool if we did, but I don't think we will. I don't think you'll ever find a way to make, like, 2 plus 2 equal 5. You know, I, I, these the things are problems be that I don't think you can really ever get around. And I tend to feel the same way about FTL too. Um, truth be told, I mean, I, it's, it's so cliche to say that we're going to discover all the science there ever is in, in the next few centuries. But I actually would not be surprised if we, we had all the basic physics done inside the next few centuries. And, you know, you get better at doing research, things like that. Uh, there might be problems we could work at for millennia and make tiny little bits of progress on, or we might do that for millennia and then just ram into a wall and not be able to make any further progress. And eventually you either give up because you can't be solved or, or you just become convinced it can't be. But um, I don't know. You know, you, you, I, I do not believe it's you know a box within a box within a box forever on, on science. You know, the, the rules of the universe, all they are. And we say things like, um, you know, you can never figure them all out. I'm sure there'll be problems that we never figure out uh, the answer to. Um, but I don't think that it's going to be like the laws of this universe are going to turn out to be infinite in scope. Um, thank you, Andrew Kroll. What do we call people born on the moon? When do you think you when do you think it will be practical and safe? Love your content. Thank you, Andrew. Um, what would we call people who are born on the moon? I'm trying to think of some of those fictional examples because there have been some. Moonies, of course. You always have lots of uh, derogatory or minor names that pop up in good fiction. Uh, Selenites, I think, is one uh, that I've heard kicked around for Selene, the moon goddess of Rome or Greece or Carthage. Selene, one of the moon goddesses of one of the Mediterranean civilizations. Um, Lunos, Lunites... I don't think I'd want to call them lunatics. Lunatics. Yeah, I think they probably end up getting called lunatics, but I don't think that'd be what they choose to call themselves. Um, let's see. When do you think it'll be practical and safe? For people to be born on the moon, it would be very irresponsible for that to happen until you actually had had a, I, I'd say something at least as long-lasting and, and large in scope as like McMurdo in Antarctica. When you've had a base that's got, you know, a couple hundred people at it, you know, living there for years at a time, you can actually talk about things like gravity. When you've also had plenty of animal experiments proving that it's safe to carry a baby to term in low gravity, um, then you can start thinking about actually having kids uh, on on the moon or Mars. Before that, if you want to bring people in, do it by immigration. You know, um, and I don't think I'd want to be. I don't think you have permanent residence until you'd feel like you were safely able to have kids there anyway. But if you did feel like you could have people living there their whole life, then you'd probably start having kids almost right away. Um, but I mean, I don't really expect that to be a huge problem that we have to spend a lot of time overcoming as opposed to some other ones that would be associated with low gravity. Um, Matt Soares asks, hi Isaac, love the show. Thank you, Matt. I'm 35. What do you think would be the most dramatic technological changes I'll get to see in my lifetime? Hmm. Hopefully, radical life extension. People always ask me, what technology do I hope to see you invented in my lifetime? Always life extension. <laughs> um... 
we will get to see self-driving cars. We were just talked about that a little while ago. I think we will get to see uh, AI robots sufficiently skilled that they're able to do most, you know, of what we think of as reasonably repetitive tasks, uh, including a lot of intellectual ones too. One surprise is everyone always thought factories would be the place where AI was hitting and causing massive disruption. Of course, they are doing just that, but they also had a lot of office jobs. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it happens in the background, but there aren't any people uh, that go around really doing editing for spell check anymore because we have spell check. There were people whose jobs were doing just that. And um, say a lot of newspapers would have people who did that, and now they have spell check, and they still have tons of grammar errors, at least uh, in a lot of the newspapers in my area. Um, but, um, you know, you had a lot of uh, AI, I think, that would be taking over a lot of what I, I think of as non creative jobs. Um, and I generally don't think you have a lot more. Um, a lot more actual new jobs popping up because usually there's so much work to be done that you know and so many things we can always improve in terms of standard of living that if you start eliminating jobs you can usually find a new jobs to give people because new things we popped up as a demand um but it's always hard to say we we didn't do but i was going to do an episode called un, uh, automated unemployment and we might get around to doing it at one point but uh you know that's a that's a topic where um it's so hard to predict what's going to happen. It will be disruptive, but I think it will usually turn out to be a net benefit. So automation will be the other big one. Um, and I would say probably a, a lot more virtual reality, though I'm never sure that's going to be one of those things that people really get their lives dominated by in terms of like that becoming people spend all their time in virtual space. I think that is probably a long way off. Um, 3PO asks, shout out from South Africa. <laughs> I've never actually visited Africa. Um, I have to make that trip there at some point in time. I'd like to see the pyramids, though. That's on the other side of the continent. Um, and uh, let's see. What was the question? How would you go about picking your crew of a spacecraft arc that is intended to reseed humanity? Wow. Um, you know, I think when we were doing the uh, evacuation Earth, I, I made the point that um, <clears throat> whenever they're talking about like these bunkers that are designed to you know, keep a thousand people in them and you have to put the exports in, of course, for us, you know, make sure you get your best and brightest scientists in there. I say, why? why? Why would you need your best and brightest theorists in, in your bunker? Um, you know, they're not going to be doing any more new science down there. <laughs> um, you, when you're sending an interstellar arc out, for instance, you really don't need your best theorists. You need those guys back home. They're not going to be doing any science in that new colony because back home from the civilization to send them out there, there's going to be trillions and trillions of people in, the, in that local solar system doing all the research and sending it out of them. They do need scientists, of course, uh, both to teach the sciences and to execute the actual science and engineering they need there, and also to actually collect data to send back to all the scientists there, and I'm sure many of them will actually get scientific accomplishments of their own because they're going to theorize and they'll be right on the spot with force access to the data, which will take years and years to transmit home and back, but... You know, you're going to get better results in terms of science by uh, sending home the signal, waiting the century for it to get back from Earth because there's just so many more of them advancing the science there. Um, in terms of how would you pick those crew, you say, well, we need the people with like no genetic deviations, no no deficiencies. I say, no, you can do that with frozen sperm and eggs. Um, and typically a civilization like that is going to be able to treat anything like that medically anyway, so it's not really likely to be too much of an issue. Um and I guess I think you don't have to really worry about genetic bottlenecking either. Again, you could send, you know, any any ethnicity you felt like sending along and still pack along every other ethnicity and still grow them on the spot. Um, and so uh, you wouldn't want to do it that way. Um, I mean, you wouldn't have to do it that way. You might do that for the basic crew because you're trying to pull best talent from every location. Um, what are the things they usually do um, in, in these kind of uh, sci-fi ones they're trying to pick up a colonies for crews or crews for colonies uh, first generation just skills what kind of skills do we need to get from point A to point B personality type wise you want people very conscientious uh, I'd say uh, you know very strong sense of duty and very good educators because most of what they're doing is ship maintenance and educating the next generation when it's a when it's an arc ship like that Probably an awful lot of botanists too, uh, and by uh, and you know uh, agricultural exports because you have to grow all that food while you're going there and maintain that ecosystem on board the ark ship if you're doing it that way. But um, other than that, I, I don't think you really have to be all that picky about your crew. You send a lot of the people who have themselves good profiles uh, psychologically as well as in terms of skill sets, and uh, you try to get them age diversified enough uh, so that um, you know you're not having uh, 
like when you first put them on board, say, oh, we're going to put all these adults on board. They have kids on the way. So well, now you got a big gap, like 20 years between, you know, your new people being born and, and the folks who are getting older. Oh, of course, if you have life extension, it doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, I don't think we'd actually have to be all that picky about those. And the other thing is, when we start sending elk ships on that very first one where you'll, you know, probably be fitting out like we did the Apollo crew, you know, cream of the crop in terms of skills. Um, the idea isn't send one ship, it's to send tens of thousands and thousands of ships out to colonize towards every star you can. And uh, at that point in time, your ideal crew is probably volunteers and is not actually criminally insane. Other than pack them on board. You know? <laughs> um, Trey Harmon asks, do you agree with Elon that the discovery of intelligent alien life will result in a dramatic increase in defense spending? No. Uh, one, I don't expect to actually discover intelligent alien life anytime soon. And if we did, it would probably be, wow, look at that Carter Ship 3 civilization 100 billion light years from here. Um, it's not a hundred billion, hundred million light years from here. <laughs> um, and, uh, let's see. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure the, I do not know what the context of that statement was. The idea is if aliens come near us and, and, uh, whether they seem peaceful or not, you want to be able to defend yourself. The problem is you're not going to be able to do that with conventional weapons. If they can actually get to us, you're you're not going to be able to like build up enough guns with our current technology to be able to do anything against them. So what you'd be spending that on, if you want to do you know more defense to make yourself safer, which you understandably want to do, is to be spending on a lot of engineering and science who are really good at back engineering things from what they could see of the alien technology or get your hands on. You, know, you might get really heavy spending on uh, people who are effectively uh, pickpocketing the alien ambassadors uh, for their smartphones. You can uh, back engineer it. Um, and, uh, you know, who stealthily go through the embassy's garbage trying to find any bit of technology they can get. Uh, spend a lot of money on, like, hiring your very best negotiators and ambassadors to try to weasel technology out of them. So uh, you can have, you know, 10 times the military force we have nowadays. It's not going to help you against anybody who's got interstellar travel. They, they just have too much of an energy advantage on you. Um, cool ass cats. Thank you again. Like cool ass cats. Um, let's see. Simon Farmer asks, Isaac, have you thought any more about the security of allowing your stellar neighbors to build Nico Dyson beams? Um, I do remember you asked me that a little while ago, Simon. That was over on the uh, Facebook page, I think. Um, the idea being... If you have somebody building a Nico Dyson beam, and again, that's the you know stellar Death Star equivalent, uh, could you actually let your neighbors build something like that, or would you have to strike force before they could actually build it? And the idea being, if they turn that on you, you know they're going to vaporize you, and you potentially vaporize your whole solar system in bits and pieces if you got a bit of a growing Dyson yourself. Um, and then that you know that a force strike has to be. To do a force strike where you're not using the mutually assured destruction policy, you have to have a force strike that doesn't allow mutually assured destruction. The issue there is that you can actually pack stuff around and not going to be able to vaporize. You know, again, to blow up the Earth, you actually had to turn the whole solar energy on it for a week. So somebody could be sticking something on the uh, the dark side of, of uh, you know, something in terms of the direction towards them, the dark side of an asteroid or, uh, or a moon where it was, you know, buried under kilometers of rock. And that thing has enough time to deploy. And that's nothing but a ton of small, uh, you know, thin meals that basically shoot around the sun and form another Nicodysamine itself, and then target an even at them. You might also potentially be able to do that around, uh, you know, leave packages around other stars to rapidly assemble. But I think your major way of preventing anyone from doing that themselves, so they could build one themselves around, a, you know, an a unoccupied star and try to attack you without you knowing about it, uh, or knowing who did it anyway, is that you just want to deploy a lot of probes everywhere. You know, somebody's system is their system and, and you spy from right outside it. Call it the equivalent of like um, international waters, if you would. Uh, and if it's an unoccupied system, you leave probes there. You know, you want to see what's going on. Uh, so I, 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 you could certainly do a full strike with a Nico Dyson beam. I just don't think that would actually be effective. And again, you would never actually do an attack like that with the beam itself. You would send all KMs in that were powered by that beam so they showed up in a volley. You know, you turn a beam on Earth, it's going to take a week for an uh, for uh, saw like our sun in terms of energy a week for it to burn the earth down to you know total ashes it would vaporize the surface area rather much quicker than that um but uh you could probably have the crust off inside a couple hours or well, you need at least 24 hours to actually get the plant to spin all the way around um though you'd have burned off the whole atmosphere and everything inside it by then um 
you know, you're only hitting one side. But instead you send relativistic kill missiles because instead of that taking a week to deliver its payload, you are delivering all that energy to the Alkames that are going, and you're delivering it in a staggered fashion that has them all arrive at the same time in a big volley. Volley fire is much better. So all those things come ramming in there. As to what your defense against that is, that's just a screen so you can shoot those down. But if you got somebody putting a Nike or Dyson beam into orbit, you know, orbit around their sun, you can counter that by putting a great big old, you know, expandable meal out. That's a lot cheaper than doing that Nike or Dyson even. That can be deployed between you and them, you know. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Hugo Stinson asks, do you think that increasing competition between the U.S., China, and others will accelerate space development? hope so. Uh, you know, I always like cooperation more than competition, though competition can be very good at, uh, especially healthy competition, can be very good at boosting things forward. Um, but I often think cooperation is more effective. Either one works to some degree, though, uh, assuming it doesn't result in a war, obviously. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I guess I would say just a qualified yes, though I'd rather see more cooperation. And, and more importantly, I think what's going to boost it is when somebody can find an economic use of the space. Like, if somebody does asteroid mining and comes back with uh, half trillion tons of, uh, half trillion dollars worth of gold, you don't need any more competition uh, from the local governments to get that done. It's going to accelerate because people want to get out there and get that stuff. All right. Um, so, a number of folks have been asking if I go on the Joe Rogan experience. Um, I, I think I, I've said before that I get more uh, suggestions to go on that show than all the other podcast interviews combined. Uh, I do like Joe Rogan's show, but I have a policy when it comes to things like that. If somebody invites me on, I'm only too happy to come on. Um, I do not ask people to come on their show because my philosophy on it is first, kind of forward. Uh, second, those folks who do a lot of interviews or guests, they know what their audience likes. Um, and uh, if they haven't heard of you and you know, folks send messages saying, hey, check this guy out, great, and they want to bring you on. Otherwise, they're going to know if they want you on your show and what you do with your audience. That's their call, and that's better done by them, too. So if somebody invites you on your show, they know that you, you know that they think there's a good episode there based on what they think of what they've seen in your work and uh, what their audience likes. And so, again, were you to ask me, I'd be glad to go on, which is generally my attitude about most podcasts um, or, or uh, radio shows. And uh, if not, then not. Um, good show, though. Uh, thank you again, Coolest Cats. <laughs> Um, hello, Joplik asks, hello, do you think that cybernetic technologies are required for interstellar travel? No. Um, I think you almost always have them, but, uh, we say required. You say, is this useful and do people want to use it? Well, probably yes, the first and maybe for the second, it would depend on the people, uh, and the technology, but you don't absolutely need it. I mean, again, if you've got a rotating drum, uh, that's large, then that's good enough, right? It's more of a power source and drive thing. You really don't need all that much advanced technology for interstellar travel. You just need that power supply and that automation to be able to produce big things. Uh, Vani Gall asks, um, thoughts on a ring around Earth to do solar power? Would it be in near time? Would it be ever be a near time reality? I mean, you could do a big ring around the Earth. I think we actually might do an episode on that one day as a megastructure, kind of like a halo, uh, guess kind of you know, ring that goes around a planet that people live on. Because you can build something like that, and I think we actually talked that a little bit about that in Matrioska Shell Worlds. I don't know that you would do that as a solar power thing. Though I mean, you you could. It's just why not just do smaller satellites? Um, you know that you always like. It's like when we talk about Dyson sphere, people say, "Why would people ever you know invest in building something that big?" You say, "Well, it's like asking why they would ever invest in building a million houses." You don't do one big thing. You do lots of smaller things incrementally as you need them. And then you can replace them individually, you can upgrade them individually, you can tell them what you want, and other people can own or produce them. Uh, doing a single big ring around Earth has its problems. That's actually the biggest downside of the orbital ring, is especially if you're trying to limit it just the equator, is that's, that's something that almost everybody's got to be okay with you building. Um, whereas when it's something you can just do locally or small, then it's much easier to get that built and prototyped and things like that. Um... I think we got time for a couple more questions, uh, mods, if you want to send me a few more. Um, might be having a slowdown. I actually get these through sometimes. I was waiting for a couple more questions to pop up in the Discord, so what we got here going on. Um, 
I think I've already mentioned that we uh, are not doing a Discord after our show this time around, but um, uh, let me just pull one right out there. Things. Should NASA send a probe to Europa to check for life in its underground ocean? And if so, is that the best way to melt ice to get down there? Um, hmm. Sending a probe to Europa right now to check for it, I mean, we'd love to see that. But what you'd probably have to do is you'd be sending a probe that needed a really strong tether and a nuclear power supply to melt its way down there. You'd probably just do like a big, hot metal thing of, of radioactive material with a tether on it and just drop that down there. And uh, also with hopefully cameras on it. Uh, problem being that you, if you are actually detecting any life, you'd probably be sterilizing microbes. But of course, if there are bigger life there, you'd be able to see that. I don't think we would want to try to do that anytime too soon. But uh, I would say that would be... Um, it would certainly be in like my top five list of things to get done in terms of solar system exploration. Um, and uh, all those, of course, being taking samples from... Uh, uh, taking some deeper samples from certain parts of Mars. Um, and, uh, yeah, although we always say Europa, Callista is also a really good, uh, target, so is Triton or Titan. Um, and I would like to take closer looks on those. Um, it's hard to say which of those would be the easiest to do, though, but melting your way down to Europa, I'd almost feel like that's something you'd want to do with an actual base there. And you can melt your way down there a little bit to put your base so they're not getting irradiated by, uh, the magnetosphere of Jupiter. Um, uh, although I don't know if anyone mentioned it on the show, um, those magnetospheres are actually pretty easy to clear up of all that radiation if you're actually there. Um, you can start doing some things with magnetics to just pull all that ions out of there. It's, it's It turns out actually not that hard. So I, I don't want folks to think that if you're selling a place like Jupiter, you always have to go for extreme radiation protection. There are things you can do to just kind of eliminate that threat. Because what's happening there is the magnetosphere is trapping ionized particles. Um, and you can blow those out. Um... Mayu.tk, sorry for mispronouncing that. Question, how do you think conspiracy theories will evolve in the future? I have no idea. I think they'll get uh, much better production values and remain popular. You know, uh, something a lot of folks forget is is a lot of shows that do cover that. Uh, A pretty big chunk of the audience doesn't necessarily believe the conspiracy theories in question, or they might be open to one or two here and there. They just find it fun to, to listen to or watch, and maybe they're open to it or not. But it's the same thing with science fiction. Um, you know, it's uh, some folks are true believers, and so, it depends on the conspiracy theory. Some of them might be much more valid than others. But uh, I don't really expect to see conspiracy theories disappear at any point in time. Um, Jeff Franklin, uh, hello. Do you think dark energy is something we could harness to forward space and make FTR possible? Uh, if we really understood how we expand space that way with dark energy, if that was something we could tap, I don't think you could use that to, uh, I don't think you could use that to actually go faster and light in any particular fashion. What you're doing is you're adding extra space, you know, presumably near your ship. That's not something you, you really want to be doing. Um, but, uh, I know I've really seen a way you could do that, uh. If we get to tell us how dark energy is producing space, though, that would certainly be tons of cool technologies and potentially potentially an infinite power supply. We don't know where that's coming from, so it's hard to say. All right, we got time for one last question. Uh, edit Life, thank you very much. Stupid sci-fi to uh, stupid sci-fi question. If we adapt in space over generations living in zero G, will our brains hypertrophy grow super large? You know, I think I mentioned earlier my favorite sci-fi writer is Alastair Reynolds for hard sci-fi. Um, he does have an example in House of Sons of a, a, a group of people who have chosen to do, you know, life extension and mental expansion by just letting themselves keep growing. And uh, so they have gigantic heads and they, they think slower, but, you know, they have much more thoughts of just slower. And uh, we actually see something like that with, um, um, I can't remember his actual name, Julian Dafiki. Um Bean from the Endor, uh, Endor's Game series. Uh, he's just a giant who keeps growing and growing and growing, and they have him in spaceships so that he won't uh, won't die from the weight of gravity as a war. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, that is an option. Uh, I, and, of course, it's always popular in sci-fi to show people who have been living on board ships in space being super large or super tall and skinny and wraith-like, but you could potentially get the, the mega skull, giant head, skinny little body thing going on, but I really don't think so, because, um, you know, again, the higher tech you get, the more you can basically be cosmetic about your appearances, 
And uh, I don't think people would be too casual about abandoning the you know the baseline ideal human forms, but it's possible. Um, all right. And uh, that's actually kind of an interesting one to do. Uh, I, I could see people potentially getting much bigger heads with time. Um, anyway, we're going to go ahead and close out. Uh, we're just going over the schedule real quick. Uh, it's presumably been up there in the background. We do have coming up this week is the uh, spacesuits and uh, extreme environment suits episode. And then we got Winter on Venus coming up after that. And then high tech search and rescue. And uh, we do have that bonus episode I think I mentioned on the break. Um, I'm not sure when we're doing our next live stream just yet. I think that's going to be probably the 27th of October, but we'll put that up there towards the last week. I always like to hold off on scheduling those in case something comes up on that Sunday. Um, anyway, thanks for joining us today, and uh, we will see you on Thursday. So that wraps up today's live stream Q&A. If you had a question we didn't get to or another came to mind, feel free to put that in the comments on the video and I'll be back later this evening to answer them. You can also pop into our Facebook group, Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur, to discuss topics with like-minded individuals or any of our other forums. Thanks again for joining us today and we'll see you Thursday.